This is Guns and Butter. So there's a big chill that they're laying on. And I think these episodes of terrorism actually show the Anglo-American elite is now more than a little hysterical that the world situation is tending to escape from their control, that things are getting out of hand. And they respond in these tried and true methods of, well, you know, let's give them a whiff of, of terrorism, right? Nothing huge, but, you know, substantial, which is just what we've seen, right? About 20 people killed in France and, uh, and some more across, uh, across Europe. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Russia, Belarus, France, Greece. The world rebels against Wall Street rule. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian, author, and lecturer. He is author of Against Oligarchy, Surviving the Cataclysm, A Study of the World Financial Crisis, 9-11 Synthetic Terror, Made in the USA, Obama, The Unauthorized Biography, and co-author of George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography. He is a leader and activist with the United Front Against Austerity. On today's program, we discuss the terrorist attacks in Paris, the global economic upheaval and currency wars, the Greek elections, and activist Reverend Edward Pinckney's legal prosecution. Webster Tarpley, welcome. Thank you so much. Good to be with you again, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Webster. Twelve people were killed in Paris in a military-style attack on Charlie Hebdo, a newspaper known for running cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad. According to McClatchy News Service, quote, the terror attack wasn't a total surprise. Europe, France, and even the newspaper have been preparing for such an attack for months. End quote. According to the New York Times, the militants had been known to the police for years and had been closely monitored by the intelligence services. End quote. Where would you start in trying to understand these terrorist attacks? Well, I would, uh, in effect, uh, start with the question of alliance discipline. In other words, geopolitical terrorism. And this is... Uh, my own um, background, I guess, to a to a pretty large extent, uh, it's something like this: the, this really serious terrorism in uh, in Western Europe occurs or has occurred historically when various countries decide that they're not happy with the Anglo-American yoke. They don't want to be dominated by Washington, London, New York. They want to assert some kind of independence or some kind of national project. They don't want to simply accept uh, orders. And um, this, is, this is what I wrote about starting in 1978, the Aldo Moro kidnapping, was that Moro wanted to break out of the NATO lockstep. He wanted to bring the Communist Party into the government, strong national government, and open up uh, all kinds of trade deals with the Arab countries, the Middle East, oil for development, uh, and things like this. And uh, therefore, he was uh, killed. And the, um, the, uh, the obvious implication is that this was done by Western U.S.-British intelligence agencies. Uh, similarly, General de Gaulle of France, of course, was the, the, the greatest of all rebels inside NATO. He even kicked NATO out of France in 1966, right? The headquarters used to be near Paris, Versailles, I think, kicked him out. Uh, and what happened to him? There were 30 plus 
more than 30 assassination attempts against General de Gaulle. And of course, CIA working through Algerian uh, disgruntled French settlers and ultra-colonialists and things like this are are key. We've also had it more recently, right? If you remember in 2011, Norway was part of the bombing of Libya. And at a certain point, the Social Democratic government of Norway said, we're tired of this, we're dropping out. And when the Netherlands government, the Dutch, saw it, they said, actually, maybe we'll drop out too. And then what do you get? Breivik, uh, the lunatic, right, who starts shooting at the children of the elite of this country uh, at that uh, summer camp. So I uh, think that what we're dealing with now is is something similar. Now, here are the relevant points. It has nothing to do with Charlie Hebdo, has nothing to do with cartoons, has nothing to do with, uh, with free speech. Here's what it has to do with. The president of France, Hollande, uh, is, of course, a political desperado, right? He, his popularity is, you know, below Jimmy Carter or below George W. Bush, right? It's about 20 percent. Uh, he's desperate. He, he would like to run again for a second term, but he's got to immediately reverse his field. And I think the idea is that he, over this Christmas vacation, he went through a kind of a policy shift, right? A renversement, a, a complete uh, reversal of what he'd been doing so far. And he began announcing this on the uh, 5th of January, on the Monday before the Charlie Hebdo terrorism on Wednesday, right? So we're talking about the 5th to the 7th. So on the 5th, uh, Francois Hollande, the French president, gets on this main radio station in the country. And he says uh, that he has been talking to Putin and that he has now been convinced by Putin that Putin does not wish to annex eastern Ukraine. He says, Putin told me that, and I believe him. All he wants, all Putin wants, says Hollande, is to remain influential. What he wants is for Ukraine not to become a part of NATO. Reasonable enough, right? You know, let it remain neutral, which it had been uh, for quite a while. And then the big one. Hollande says, quote, I think the sanctions must stop now. They must be lifted if there is progress. Again, I think the sanctions must stop now. That is a direct challenge to the uh, lockstep, the sanctions imposed by Washington and London, right? The anti-Russian economic sanctions, which these characters in the Anglo-American camp now believe they think they can bring Russia to their knees through a combination of the Saudi pumping policy, right? Prince Bandar's pump, baby pump, to flood the market with oil and the sanctions. This is now, uh, we have got these, these Anglo-American uh, think tanks salivating that they can now break up Russia, topple Putin, have a color revolution. But wait, along comes the French president and he says, I think the sanctions must stop now. That's a direct rebellion. That is going to lead to the collapse of the sanctions regime as a whole. Right? It's going to be gone. And for Hollande, the implication is there are these two uh, small aircraft carriers, right, amphibious assault ships, uh, very capable ships, the Mistral class. There are two of them. The Russians have bought them. The French would like to deliver them if they want to be taken seriously as arms suppliers. Uh, they have to. Many thousands of jobs depend on this. Everybody knows that the U.S. and the British have told Hollande, don't you dare deliver those ships. And Hollande is practically here saying – uh, that he's going to deliver them. And it, there's there's more. 
uh, there was going to be a conference on the 15th of January. Uh, and this was going to be in Astana, the capital of Kazakhstan, right, way out in Central Asia. And this was going to be attended by Putin of Russia, by Poroshenko of uh, Ukraine. In other words, the Ukraine fascist leader. I always call him Pornoshenko. Helps to remember who he is. Uh, plus Merkel of Germany, plus Hollande. And with Hollande on the line that we hear on, on this uh, interview, this would have been really rough for Merkel to, to hold up the entire uh, anti-Russian position. Uh, but what we see now, jumping ahead of our argument, that conference never occurred. And the fact that that conference never occurred, it was not going to occur. This was announced by Merkel on the famous Sunday, right, a week ago uh, yesterday, when we had the big uh, uh, unity march, right, the big love fest, the big kumbaya in the streets of Paris. And, of course, the U.S. didn't send anybody. But uh, right after that or during that, that same day, Merkel gave a little interview saying, by the way, the Astana conference is not going to happen. So a great opportunity to have Europe solve its own problem was swept away. And now there are two more. The U.S. and the British want France to invade Libya. They, uh, they want to do that. They want to get every, every oil well in Libya pumping. That's part of the pump baby pump to hit the Russians and the Iranians and the Venezuelans and everybody else. Uh, but Hollande said in the interview, I'm not going to invade Libya. That's, that's no, no purpose for France. France will not intervene in Libya. The international community should do that, he says. And then finally on Greece, there's going to be an election in Greece on the 25th of January. And every indication is that the Syriza party of Alexis Tsipras, the left union, with an excellent economic program, anti-Wall Street, anti-austerity, anti-City of London, anti-debt, extremely good, um, they're going to win. They're going to become the government. And you're going to have the first anti-austerity government in Europe in decades, an anti-banker, anti-financier. And this is going to be a, a watershed really for the entire world because Alexis Tsipras from now on will be going to those European Union meetings in uh, in Brussels, and actually, even the the NATO the NATO meetings, he will go because you know Greece is a NATO uh, country. So the strategy of the bankers concerning Greece was hysteria and fear. Right? You had Merkel come out. You had the uh, the Greek prime minister, the austerity ghoul Samaras, come out and say, "If you vote for Syriza, it's the end of the world, chaos, the abyss, delirium. You're going to leave the euro." Well. The Syriza program is explicitly stay in the euro. And anybody with any brains can see that the best policy, the correct policy, is stay in the euro and fight to change the policy of the European Central Bank. Don't leave the euro. The only people who are saying that Syriza wants to leave the euro are British speculators, Wall Street speculators, people who would like to bust up the euro and feast on the uh, on the carcass. But that is not what the uh, Syriza party wants. Anybody who says that Syriza is anti-euro is simply lying. Anyway, they ask uh, Hollande in this interview, what do you think about that? And he says, well, he's very relaxed. He says, uh, the Greeks uh, have to vote for whoever they want, and we want them to keep up their international obligations. But I'm, I'm really not so worried about that. 
That was also another huge freakout then behind the scenes by Merkel and others saying, how dare you? You're supposed to be talking fear and you're doing the opposite. How dare you? And indeed, in the wake of all this, the Syriza party has moved ahead of the uh, new democracy, the right wingers, by about five percentage points. And that is big. And that a lot of that lead came uh, after these events. So what we have in this interview, and again, it's France, France en terre on the 5th of January, is that Hollande is rebelling against NATO on these key points, right? He's saying, uh, I'm against the sanctions. I want to cooperate with Putin. I'm not going to invade Libya. I'm not freaking out about Greece. And we can add in certainly that the, the French uh, parliament had said that they want to recognize the Palestinian state. That's an important atmospheric. But let me just point out, this is, this is not about Israel. This is about the cohesion and discipline of the U.S. empire. In other words, rebellions like this on a broad array of policy issues, this is, this is what elicits uh, terrorism. Now, if you look at uh, Charlie Hebdo, this is a scurrilous uh, publication, which I've you know, laughed at over the years. It's funny. But if you look at those people, it started off as anti-De Gaulle. The people who founded it were Vichy. They were Vichy coming from the Pétain Vichy fascist regime, in effect. And the people who are in there these days or were in there, uh, the editor, the guy who was the editor, a guy called Philippe Val, V-A-L, had gone on to become the head of France en Terre. In other words, it's like becoming the, the president of CBS or NBC network, right? So this is not an anti-establishment group. And another one is this guy, Sharb, one of the uh, cartoonists who was killed. Sharb's wife was a minister in the government of Sarkozy. She was like the youth sports minister or some, you know, junior minister, but still right wing member of the cabinet, right, of the, well, the sub-cabinet of, uh, of France. So the idea with these killings was to say, French elite, watch out. We can get you anywhere. And we have to remember the, um, the story of France is that until recently, France was the classic maverick of the Western alliance, right? France could say no, no to London, no to New York, no to Washington. And France could also be exceptional, right? L'exception française, what is that? The French exception is that they're independent. They're fiercely independent. They don't take orders. And I think the, um, the Anglo-Americans feared and still fear that these moves by Hollande indicate that the, uh, the French administration, the French bureaucracy, right, this, this group of Cartesian officials right, had gotten fed up with the sanctions and wanted to gravitate much more to a pro-Russian line that would allow them to restart the French economy and perhaps win the election. And uh, certainly for Hollande, winning the election would be a big deal. So I think that's pretty much it. Um, it's not about cartoons. It's not about Muhammad, not about any of this other stuff. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Russia, Belarus, France, Greece. The world rebels against Wall Street rule. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, Hollande was allying himself with French economic interests instead of Washington's foreign policy. Could the Paris right. attacks constitute an attack on all of Europe, 
not just France, that is the subjugation of all of Europe? Well, um, you'd have to see the, you know, the politics of these individual situations. It's interesting that after the French, the French attacks, first of all, we have to assume that there, that there are Atlanticist uh, pro-CIA MI6 networks in the French police, right? In other words, these people who did it, Koulibaly and, uh, and the two brothers, the Kwashi brothers, these are the usual suspects, right? If you remember Claude Rains in the Casablanca movie, round up the usual suspects. These people were the well-known political uh, suspects, right, for political terrorism. And the Kouachi brothers, one of them had been in jail for a year and a half. Police knew exactly who he was. And then uh, all of them, the two Kouachis and Koulibaly, had been rounded up uh, for a plot to – uh, spring to break out of jail, this uh, Algerian terrorist, Belkacem, of the GIA, Groupe Islamique Armé. Uh, that guy had blown up some cars on the Paris subway in 1995. So these people were well known. Uh, they were on the U.S. no-fly list. Koulibaly had been uh, training, you know, in the Middle East at various places, uh, one of the Kouachis had gone to Yemen, and he had come under the wing of Awalaki, Anwar Awalaki, the CIA lackey. Even somebody as uh, confused as Jeremy Scahill uh, mentioned in one of his TV interviews about Yemen that uh, he thought Awalaki might well be a U.S. double agent. Well, hallelujah. He's got it written all over him. Right? He's Awalaki, the CIA lackey. CIA double agent. So if you're recruited by him, then you're likely to be a U.S. double agent also. So that would apply to one of these Kouachi uh, brothers. Now, it, it's they, this whole agitation, this whole theater has spread to Belgium and then, of course, to Greece. Uh, one of the, the other features of this thing is to chill the political uh, atmosphere in Europe, right? When Syriza wins the election, which I think they are now destined to do, and especially if they can form a government, right, they might not have quite enough to form the government. And they're going to have to think about coalitions and other problems. But if they can succeed in solving that, I think you might have a mass upsurge in Europe. In other words, the labor movement, right, the people that have been downtrodden, crushed, humiliated, stripped, ripped off, flayed alive below these many decades might say, okay, basta, right? It's enough. We're going to rise up. Uh, and I think what you're seeing is some preventive chilling by NATO intelligence to say, let's, let's uh, bash these people down. Uh, and we have the same thing here in the U.S., right? You notice last week, in two days, we had two psychotic patsies from Ohio coming forward and calling either the wife of their intended victim or the police, allegedly, and saying that they were going to attack the Republicans of the House of Representatives or Speaker Boehner. And uh, one of these was the bartender at his uh, country club, Mike, the bartender, turns out to be a psychotic patsy and calls Boehner's wife and says, I'm coming for you. Doesn't seem to make much sense, does it? And then the other guy is this long haired fellow from Cincinnati. And he, of course, has been carefully groomed by an FBI uh, agent, right, a, an entrapment 
uh, agent. So what's the result there, right? It means if you go out and demonstrate against the Republicans of the House, right? For example, the Republicans of the House have already passed something. I think the first thing they did to cut the Social Security disability benefit by at least 20%. They've done this. And suppose you're on, on Social Security disability or you have a relative who is. You're going to be plenty mad. But then you, then they can come forward and say, oh, you're following in the footsteps of these two psychotic patsies. Are you a terrorist too? I mean, God, we all lived through this, right, under the 9-11 era. Right? You couldn't come out and say down with Bush because then you were you were getting too close to uh, Osama bin Laden or somebody like this. You get the idea? So there's a big chill that they're laying on. And I think these episodes of terrorism actually show the Anglo-American elite is now more than a little hysterical that the world situation is tending to escape from their control, that things are getting out of hand and they respond in these tried and true methods of, well, you know, let's give them a whiff of, of terrorism, right? Nothing huge, but, you know, substantial, which is just what we've seen, right? About 20 people killed in France and, uh, and some more across, uh, across Europe. And once again, I can't stress it enough. It has nothing to do with cartoons, nothing to do with free speech. There is no free speech in France, right? There's all kinds of stuff you're not allowed to say, right? You're not allowed to say certain things about the Second World War. You're not allowed to say certain things about Armenians. You're not allowed to, um, to do a million different things, right? They ban parties. They do all that stuff. You can't watch press TV. Uh, so this complete festival of hypocrisy um, that, they've, that they've got going. Uh, Thierry Maison, Frenchman, who uh, obviously follows this stuff closely, he would add another thing, that when you have uh, maybe 10% of the French population who are uh, Muslims, what might come out of this is a long, medium to long-term effort to weaken France by provoking a civil war. In other words, if you can somehow drive this wedge between the Muslim and non-Muslim parts of France, then maybe you can you can certainly cripple the country with uh, pervasive tensions, and maybe you can get something something going in the way of, uh, of fighting. So I would urge everybody to back off on all these things. Right? Forget about forget about the cartoons. Forget about free speech. That's not the issue. Nobody represents free speech. You have said that. We are in a season of economic upheaval. Oil is at $44 a barrel. Why is world deflation a problem, or is it? Well, it's certainly, it's a very serious problem. And when you say deflation, you are saying what most people understand by depression. In other words, the United States in 1931 and 1932 was undergoing deflation. Factories were closing. Millions of people were being thrown out on the street. Tax revenues were collapsing, right? We had migrations of Okies and other people out of the, out of the Dust Bowl, right? Horrendous uh, stuff. Uh, the picture has been muddied by libertarians, the Paul Tards, uh, Ron Paul and Rand. Uh, they, they like deflation. The people who will tell you that deflation is a good thing are people who have a lot of money, and who are convinced that they will continue to have a lot of money. And that, of course, what deflation means is that the value of money increases. So if I have $100 today, if we undergo deflation, I might have 500 uh, a year from now and, and so on. In other words, deflation means 
I am looking for a situation where you'll be thrown out of work. You'll be desperate. I can buy you for five cents on the dollar. I can buy your house for five cents on the dollar. I can buy your car for five cents on the dollar. In other words, if I have all that money hoarded, I can loot everybody. On the other side, though, for the average person, deflation, especially in the United States today, is, is horrendous because debt, most people have debt. Most people have credit card debt, mortgage debt. The effect of deflation is that those dollars that you bought, maybe those were relatively cheap dollars, right now they're going to become much more expensive dollars. Debts become harder and harder to pay back. And remember, here in the United States, the whole second half of the 19th century was a crisis of deflation. After the Lincoln policies were dumped, after the greenbacks were dumped in the 1870s, U.S. went back to the gold standard, right? The infamous Specie Resumption Act, terrible thing. It then meant that farmers saw the prices they got for products, wheat, things like this, were going down, 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 down. And the dollars that they had to use to pay back their debts were getting more and more expensive. So there was a huge scissors crisis, right? The prices that you were getting were going down, and the, the actual value of the dollars you had to pay back were going up, up, up. So that's why it's such a crusher. Uh, deflation occurs, for example, today, right? We see oil is going down, right? Don't fill your gas tank this week. If you can wait, fill it next week. It's going to be cheaper. But not only is oil going down, oil is crashing down, right? 43, 44. Seems like a good thing in the short run. I agree. But iron ore is crashing down, right? Many, a multi-year low. Copper is crashing down. That means that China is slowing. Copper means wires and new houses and new buildings and, and new wiring. You look at the Baltic Dry Index, right? The Baltic Dry Index essentially is what's it going to cost to get uh, a cargo onto a ship, a bulk carrier. And the Baltic Dry Index is about where it was in 2008 in the middle of the uh, of the panic. The barge traffic on the Mississippi is down by 4%. And you've got all kinds of other strange symptoms that every casino in Atlantic City is on the verge of bankruptcy. Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas seems to be going bankrupt. Radio Shack, bankrupt. Uh, Schlumberger, everything in the oil patch is going bankrupt, right? All the oil services uh, companies. So they're, they're going to be centers of depression, right? Texas had been riding high under Rick Perry. Not anymore. They're now crashing, crashing down. So this is, this is deflation, and it's, it's, a, it's a very bad thing. Now, why, why do we have deflation? Since 2008, we have been in a world economic depression. There is no doubt, and I've said this repeatedly. However, within that depression, as we saw in the 1930s, there are ups and downs, right? Sometimes it gets a little better. Sometimes you have a sickening lurch into the abyss. Okay, don't look now, but we're in the sickening lurch into the abyss, right? The Japanese uh, stimulus doesn't work well. Southern Europe is crashing down. China is slowing. Russia, of course, is, is a huge part of the world economy, and they're in deep trouble and on and on. However, uh, the, the principal problem is that the world banking system is clogged by two quadrillion, $2,000 trillion worth of bankrupt derivatives. 
collateralized debt obligations, credit default swaps, all kinds of derivatives. And that has meant that all the efforts to try to pull the world back to normalcy out of depression have failed. Uh, and essentially, we've had the Federal Reserve going with a hot money policy, the so-called quantitative easing, which amounts to support operations to buy up toxic, bankrupt derivatives. Over the past several years, the Federal Reserve System has bought $3 trillion, maybe $4 trillion of toxic derivatives. Again, they call them mortgage-backed securities. It means collateralized debt obligations, right? Collateralized debt obligations were the ones that destroyed every bank in Wall Street. Not AIG. AIG were credit default swaps, but all the rest, right? Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, and then Merrill Lynch, every one of them. They went down over collateralized debt obligations. So the Federal Reserve, the Greenspan, Yellen, Bernanke approach to, to solving this is to buy up these, these uh, collateralized debt obligations, and they've now bought them. But now they, they're saying they have to slow that down, right? As of October, November, the uh, QE3, quantitative easing three, has ended. And sure enough, the tremors are already here, right? Look at the stock market any given day, tremendous volatility, and all the rest. And the form it takes is this, um, this slowing, right? I also have to point out the austerity measures, right? What the IMF and the uh, other organs of the finance oligarchy have demanded is austerity, right? The Republican Party demanded austerity. Well, here in the United States, our economy is now being strangled by the sequester, right? This across-the-board cut of many, many trillions of dollars out of the U.S. budget. The Pentagon is screaming. Every agency is screaming. Uh, many areas are, you know, Virginia, Maryland turning into depressed areas, not because of oil, but because of the sequester. So that has an effect. And then Merkel, the Germans, right, this uh, absolutely primitive, counterproductive, stupid, cruel policy of deflation right, that she has imposed in the name of the banks on Greece, Portugal, Spain, Italy, Ireland, all the rest, France to some extent. Well, as a, as a result of that, there's no demand. And that's what people complain about, right? Business people say, there's no demand. We can't make investments because nobody's buying, right? And that is now becoming the general rule. So austerity and derivatives, right? The failure to wipe out derivatives, right? To cancel them, to abrogate them to shred them. That would have been one thing. And the other thing is austerity, right? This austerity is coming home to roost. So there's no demand. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Russia, Belarus, France, Greece. The world rebels against Wall Street rule. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You have said that we are in a season of economic upheaval. Why is the recent move with the Swiss franc so relevant, and what does it signal? Now, that brings us to, uh, to Switzerland, right? There are several countries in Europe that are not part of the euro. They're kind of satellites of the euro, and they're generally connected to the euro by a peg. They try to maintain a fairly stable relationship, right? Like the peg was one euro will get you 1.2 uh, 
Swiss francs or the other way around, right? Anyway, a, a fixed peg. Uh, the same thing for Denmark. The same thing for Sweden, right? These are all countries that have kept their, their own currencies, right? So here's the problem then, that the Swiss currency was already high. And what the, the Swiss National Bank, right, to avoid chaos in their country, they wanted to avoid the Swiss franc going up, 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 up. So they would have to intervene and they would have to dump Swiss francs and buy euros. So they're buying hundreds of billions of dollars or equivalent euros uh, in order to support the, uh, the euro and keep their own peg uh, going on. Now, when Draghi comes along, Draghi says, look, I'm going to flood the world with euros. I'm going to flood the world. I'm going to have QE1. And there are going to be so many euros that the value of the euro is going to go down. That's, that's what Draghi is aiming at. He wants to generate some inflation in the euro. And, and in, in effect, this is not the worst thing to do, except that he's doing it completely wrong. So at that point, the Swiss National Bank said, look, if we try to maintain this peg when Draghi is flooding the world with euros, that won't work, right? We'll have to, you know, we'll have to buy all the all the euros under the moon to prevent the Swiss franc from going up. So what they did then was, in the dead of night, as a surprise, they said, "Guess what? We're not going to try to maintain this peg anymore. We're not going to cap the value of the Swiss franc." So it shot up. So that meant that the that the Swiss franc for a while was worth a good deal more than the euro, and then it went back to about a one-to-one -one, uh, ratio. It's more complicated, though. If you look at the coverage, you will see that the Anglo-American commentators are screaming bloody murder about what the Swiss have done. So the Wall Street Journal, they're just hysterical, right? They say, Switzerland's central bank triggered turmoil in the markets. It unleashed new volatility. We have unusual financial conditions that threaten the world's already fragile economy. Right? So what it means then, if you're trying to make swatch watches, right, you're in big trouble. If you're making chocolate, cheaper watches, stuff like that, things that can be replaced from other sources – your uh, your prices just went up 15% because that's where it sort of came came to rest. So there's a whole area of well, tourism. I don't, I, I don't understand uh, when they unpegged when they unpegged the Swiss franc from the euro. Did that drive the price of a Swiss franc up or down? The Swiss franc has gone up like mad. Well, it's that's what I thought. Up by 30% in one. One day. So exactly. The, uh, well, why would the Swiss do that if it's hurting their exports? I don't understand. Because they don't care about exports. They care about their banks, their banks, their banks, and their banks. And they said we can't. We got to maintain our banking system, and we can't keep buying hundreds of billions of, of euros, right? We can't keep buying euros in order to maintain this peg. It's too much. So they had to let it float. Let it go up. And it went up like a rocket. It's not clear to me whether anybody knew that it would go up quite this much. But again, here's what I'm pointing to. The hysteria. What is the hysteria of the Anglo-Americans about this? Right? Swiss move royals, global markets, central bank surprise action signals perilous times for policymakers. That's Rupert Murdoch, right? The Wall Street Journal. What are they so upset about? I, I can only believe that the Swiss were also acting to preempt 
some kind of Anglo-American speculative attack against them in a form which I'm not in a position to say. But I think there's more to this than meets the eye. Remember, the goal of the U.S. and the British is to smash the euro, the parties that they control, right? These right-wing populist parties, right? UK Independence Party of Farage, the Le Pen Party, uh, the Front National of France, right? The Alternatives for Germany, uh, Beppe Grillo. Every demagogue, every tinhorn in Europe says, no more euro, right? So uh, the goal, of course, is that Wall Street and London want to feast on the carcass. They want to they want to wreck it, and then uh, you know loot what remains. So something, some action was being prepared by London and New York to try to use this vulnerable peg between Switzerland and the euro. Uh, so in effect, a big attack was centering on the peg, and what the Swiss simply did was they said there, there is no more peg. So that whatever that attack was, it went out into empty space. But what you see here is chaos, that there is no world monetary system, right? Once upon a time, there was the Bretton Woods system, and there were fixed bands of fluctuation that were enforced by governments, and that was it. And then, through a series of speculative attacks in the late 60s, early 70s, the banking community of the U.S. and Britain in particular smashed the Bretton Woods parodies, and since then, we are in the chaos of floating rates. The euro is an attempt to solve that. Whatever's going on against the Swiss franc, all of that uh, is, is um, serious. But I would also like to show you a couple of things that preceded that, okay? Because this is, this is unheard of, right? That the Swiss franc gets 30% stronger in one day. That's, that's, a, that's a big deal. But let's also see what happened immediately before this, right? You have these attacks on Russia, right? It means an attack on the Russian ruble. The Russian ruble has gone down by one half during 2014. So oil has gone down by one half or more. The Russian ruble has gone down by one half or more. Uh, at a certain point, around the middle of December, December 16th, there was clearly an Anglo-American attack on the ruble to try to create a panic that everybody would dump Russian rubles that there would be colossal capital flight out of Russia, right? Hundreds of billions of dollars of hot money would simply leave the country. Uh, and at that point, here's what happened. We have to look at the country of Belarus, right? People should look maybe where it is. It's stuck there between Poland and, uh, and Russia, has some borders, I think, with the, with the Baltic states, right? The capital is Minsk. It's the old... Uh, Belarusian SSR, Soviet Socialist Republic, under the State Department likes to call them the last dictator in Europe, right, Lukashenko. And he saw all of this stuff coming. He said, my God, there's a huge Anglo-American speculative attack on the Russian ruble. I'm afraid that my Belarus ruble will be pulled into the whirlpool and will panic and, uh, and my economy will be ruined. So what he did was to apply what's known as exchange controls and capital controls. You'd have to remember what these are. Capital controls is if you go to a bank in a country and you say, I want to take out $20 million, maybe it's your own account. Wait a minute, there's got to be an approval, a license 
from the treasury, the finance ministry, the central bank, whatever it is. You can't just take that money and run. You've got to uh, account for what you're going to do with it. You have to tell a government official. That's one. The exchange controls, oh, you've got $20 million uh, worth of rubles. You want to change those into yen. Wait a minute. You've got to get a license. You've got to get approval to do that from the finance ministry, the treasury, the central bank. Now, this combination, capital controls, exchange controls, is tried and true. It has proven its benefit. You may remember in the Asian contagion of 1998, the one country that did best out of all that was Malaysia under Mahathir Mohamed. Why? Because they instituted, in a timely fashion, capital controls and exchange controls. The danger with a currency like the ruble is if there's no control, then all the hot money leaves. In other words, every oligarch, every banker, every speculator, every parasite says, I don't want to keep my money in rubles because the Anglo-Americans are driving down the value of those rubles. I'm going to get them out of the ruble and into the dollar or the pound uh, or the Swiss franc, if you were lucky or the yen, or, or whatever it is. So what did Lukashenko do? He said, we're going to have a tax. You want to send money out of the country. If you want to take Belarus rubles and turn those into dollars, guess what? You pay a tax of 30%. <laughs> this is very effective. And he said, in effect, uh, it makes it everything has to be reportable. In other words, once you have a tax, you've got to tell the finance ministry what you're doing. So he said, you want to have flight capital? Okay, 30% will go back into the treasury for public purposes. Uh, the other side of it, the flip side was, if you're an exporter in Belarus and you earn dollars, pounds, yen, euros, then you've got to immediately change half of that money into Belarus rubles. And to underline this step, uh, Lukashenko said, I'm also firing my entire financial team, I'm firing the finance minister, the head of the central bank, all the rest of them, and I'm getting new, new people. So we got a whole new government, new prime minister, and a new head of the central bank to carry this stuff out. That's Belarus. Now, in pretty much the same time frame, what was Putin doing? Well, Putin could see that there was an attack on the ruble. So uh, in the night of the 15th to the 16th, right, this is a it's something on the same scale in some ways as what the Swiss have done. Uh, the uh, Russian central bank uh, sharply increased their interest rate. Uh, the goal being to try to convince people to uh, keep your money in the ruble because this is going to be uh, a very good uh, interest rate return. In other words, we'll give you a risk premium, right? We realize it's a risk but we're going to do that. So this was done. This was also done in the uh, middle of the night. And it's one of the biggest uh, increases in interest rates by any central bank in recent uh, years. At the same time, however, the statist side, the Putin side of things, did some things which were effective. These are now informal capital controls and exchange controls. It's not by law, but it's by administrative procedure. And it is, if you're a big Russian bank, you now have an official of the Russian finance ministry stationed in your foreign exchange room 
and they watch what you're doing. And if you try to send, you know, 25 million rubles and change that into dollars, they're going to be breathing down your neck and they're going to be offering you good advice not to do it. And they're going to say, all right, let's see how many dollars you have overall, what, what kind of dollar positions you have, what kind of pound positions, what kind of euro, yen, right? Those are usually the ones, Swiss franc maybe up until now and still. So the idea is that Putin has implemented de facto, informal, but I think rather effective exchange controls just through surveillance, right? Through having people in the banks and in the large corporations. Uh, there are other things, though. Russia should really go all the way, absolutely should go all the way to official exchange controls and capital controls. I would say it's only a question of time until he has to. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Russia, Belarus, France, Greece, the world rebels against Wall Street rule. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, Webster, you spoke before about the upcoming Greek elections on January 25th. You were talking about the Syriza party, how it's 5% ahead in the polls. And what I meant to ask you about at the time you mentioned this is, does Greece have voting machines? <laughs> I don't know. And by the way, uh, Alexis Tsipras, he assembled this out of probably a dozen elements. Let me just see if I can find his um, his program here. Here we go. The Syriza program. This is called the Salonika program. They essentially have four points. You got to remember, Greece has a tremendous humanitarian uh, problem. 3,000 suicides in the last several years, most of them directly related to this crushing austerity imposed by Merkel. Uh, this actually includes Greece owes money to Germany in a debt that goes back to the Nazi occupation. They have not been able to get out from under this. Um, the interesting uh, first point is the London Economic Conference of 1953. And this was after World War II, the Western countries, right, the NATO countries got together and said, okay, West Germany, you are now going to get debt relief. And they cut the German debt by about half. And uh, that's what Greece is demanding. They say, we want to have an international debt conference. Greece demands a haircut minus one half on all international financial debt. No more of this. Now, they have four principal uh, points. The first is this humanitarian crisis. There are 300,000 families that don't have electricity. It's been cut off. Food stamps would be introduced in Greece for the first time. Free pharmaceuticals and health care for these extremely poor people who don't even qualify for the Greek government-sponsored uh, medicine program. There are about 30,000 families that are homeless. They're going to be given homes. If you are in the process of being thrown out of your home uh, or if you've got tax claims against you, there's going to be a moratorium on that, right, if you're that, uh, that poor. Your primary residence will be exempt from real estate tax. The first 12,000 euros of income will be tax-free. The third point is um, 
defend the rights of labor, restore this idea of binding labor contracts, national contracts with trade unions, no more hire and fire society. Italy is going in just the opposite direction under Renzi. As I said, 300,000 jobs in the public sector, the uh, government, the private sector, and elsewhere. And if you have uh, unemployment benefits, will be extended to everybody who's unemployed, not just currently one-tenth of them. And then the fourth point is increased uh, democracy. In particular, reduce the privileges of government ministers and other uh, oligarchs under the current uh, system. This violates the conditionalities memorandum that Greece has signed with the International Monetary Fund, the European Central Bank, and the European Commission. The Troika, right? The hated and reviled Troika uh, imposing austerity. So Greece is going to rebel against that. And again, I think there's reason to believe that as we get into the springtime, a victory by working class forces, working people as a political uh, force, Syriza, that this is going to uh, this is going to blow the lid off Europe. So again, I think you have to realize this will be a turning point. This will be a colossal watershed. There's never been anything like it. And what I've just said, the cost of that is about 12 to 15 billion uh, euros. So 11 million Greeks can be saved from poverty. You can save and preserve the Greek workforce for a relatively small amount, right? The, the cost of, you know, a couple of months of, uh, of Iraq. You've been supporting Reverend Pinckney. Now, could you tell us about Reverend Pinckney and what is happening there? Well, this is now in Michigan, and Reverend Pinckney is an internationally recognized leader of the anti-austerity resistance in Michigan, in the sense that when the uh, United Nations uh, High Commissioner for Human Rights sent two representatives, two special rapporteurs were sent to talk to people in Michigan about this problem of cutting off the water, because right? this is now the big, the big tactic of the austerity forces in, in Michigan is to say, if you can't pay your water bill, we're going to cut your water off. And that, of course, creates a public health emergency. That cannot be allowed. We have to override that, right? It's nice to pay your water bill, but we can't have, you know, the bubonic plague because somebody didn't pay their water bill. So Reverend Pinckney was invited to come and testify in front of these two ladies from the United Nations. And when they came out, they said the right to water is a basic human right and the United States must act, whether it's the states or whoever it is, to respect the human right uh, to water. This is Reverend Edward Pinckney, Baptist minister, black Baptist minister there in Benton Harbor, Michigan. Benton Harbor, Michigan is the center of the Whirlpool Corporation. This is the largest manufacturer of electrical appliances in the world. If it says Amana, it's Whirlpool. If it says Maytag, it's Whirlpool. Many Kenmore are also Whirlpool. If you were concerned about the uh, Mondragon, worker self-management company there in Spain, and their uh, appliance division, that was driven bankrupt by, by Whirlpool. Whirlpool is also the family of Congressman Fred Upton. He is the Republican chairman now of the House Energy Committee. You can imagine what you're going to get from this guy. Uh, Kate Upton, the pornographic uh, movie star, right, with her bought career. She's also part of that Upton family. 
So it's a it's a family of oligarchs, super rich plutocrats, and they have Benton Harbor, Michigan is their company town. And the only opposition in there is Reverend Pinckney. For a long time, under Democrat Jennifer Granholm and now Republican Rick Snyder, there was the policy of emergency managers, right? Little Hitlers, dictators sent in to, you know, extract the pound of flesh from the budgets of these towns and cities, right? If they were thought to be in danger of, uh, of defaulting. Uh, and now we've got a, a mayor there who is essentially a continuation of the same thing. His name is Hightower. He's a creature of the uh, Whirlpool Corporation. So Reverend Pinkley's tactic is to use the Michigan law to try to do recall elections, recall people in the county government, recall people in the city government, including this Hightower. And the police state apparatus comes down on him in the form of a, a local clique, the prosecutor Mike Sepik, the judge Sterling Schrock, the uh, county commissioner, and some others. They, they gang up and uh, they frame him up saying there were changes made in the dates on the uh, signature petitions to get this recall election. Okay, you change the the dates. So that's forgery. And normally under Michigan law, it's a misdemeanor. But since this is a black community leader trying to knock this whirlpool puppet out of the uh, out of the box, it's no longer a misdemeanor. It's now a felony. And they dredge up the fact that uh, Reverend Pinckney had troubles with the law. Right. You can look at the life of Malcolm X. He had trouble. You can look at Martin Luther King, his day today. Yeah, he got uh, framed up by various states for tax evasion. So uh, they find ways and they they just had a, a trial, if we can call it that. The prosecutor, Sepik, gets up there and says, we can convict Reverend Pinckney with no evidence. We have circumstantial evidence, so we don't need evidence. And here's what it is. All white jury, everybody white. Uh, in the middle of the trial, the local Republican Party, including the sheriff, Paul Bailey, have a rally where they say, we got Pinckney. We finally got Pinckney. And a big ovation goes up from the crowd. And the crowd includes all kinds of Republican elected officials, state senators, state reps, probably people from Upton staff uh, and so forth. And then in the middle of it, the jury, the jury is tainted by the presence of, of uh, racists is what we have to conclude. Before you seat the jury, there's voir dire. So the people who are going to be in the jury are asked, do you have any relation to the sheriff, to the police, to the county government? Do you have any relation to anybody else who's got a stake in putting Reverend Pinckney in jail? And in particular, this one woman who is going to be at the center of this uh, is uh, Gail Freeland, her name is. She says, no, 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 no. And you can go on the Internet and you can see the organizations of which she's a member. She's closely associated with the county executive, the sheriff, the police and all kinds of other people. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. There may be more. So the voir dire is a mockery. That would be enough to throw out uh, the existing verdict. So the two things, the lynch mob atmosphere with the get Pinckney rally addressed by the sheriff who boasts of putting Pinckney away, right? They framed him up successfully. They boast about it. And then this other thing with the, um, the tainted uh, jury this is more than enough to throw out the entire thing, throw out the verdict, throw out the charges. 
and so forth. So we've had uh, lots of people writing letters. Uh, you can actually go to freepinkney.wordpress.com, I think. Freepinkney.wordpress.com. You can find all sorts of ways you can intervene. One thing is to send a, uh, a letter to the judge. Certainly do that. I've done it. You go to my website, tarpley.net. You're going to see my letter to Judge Sterling R. Schrock informing him that this trial is an international scandal and that it is being brought to the attention of the United Nations Human Rights Office on the High Commissioner of Human Rights, Geneva, Switzerland. And that gathering is, uh, is starting uh, right now, this week. So I urge everybody of goodwill to get behind uh, Pinckney. This is a very clear-cut case. There's no suggestion of violence. There's no wrongdoing by Pinckney. It's simply uh, to chill the use of democratic challenge. What, what's his big crime? He wanted to have an election. He wanted to have a recall election. And now in today's world, that's outrageous because that might overturn austerity. You got to think about what's at stake and get busy and, and get to work for Pinckney. Now, Reverend Pinckney has been found guilty, but he hasn't been sentenced yet. Is that right. correct? Right. The sentence is supposed to be between two and a half years and 10 years. Uh, and this is a monstrosity. For what? For a misdemeanor. They claim he, he altered the, uh, the dates. Our information is he didn't do it. It's not known who did it. Right? It could have been done by provocateurs and plants. Um, he was supposed to be sentenced this past Thursday, and the judge backed off. And I think that's an indication of tremendous international interest. So they backed off. They said there's too much publicity and too many letters that are coming in. Webster Tarpley, thank you very much. Thank you. I've been speaking with Webster Tarpley. Today's show has been Russia, Belarus, France, Greece. The world rebels against Wall Street rule. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian, author, and lecturer. He is author of Against Oligarchy, Surviving the Cataclysm, A Study of the World Financial Crisis, 9-11 Synthetic Terror, Made in the USA, and Obama, The Unauthorized Biography. Webster Tarpley is a leader and activist with the United Front Against Austerity at AgainstAusterity.org. Visit his website at tarpley.net. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaramako. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. That's F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Visit our transitional website at gunsandbutter.org and sign up for our email list. Follow us at G&B Radio.